0: Hello, and welcome to the Criminal Discourse Podcast. We're coming to you this week with a lesser known serial killer by the name of Roberto Fernandez. This is Wendy.
1: This is Trish. And we're glad you joined us. Yeah. Welcome back. We're uh, headed here to the end of July and we're midway through summer already. Already. That's why
0: I picked this case in particular. It takes place in Brazil and Florida. So a little bit of tropical feeling to what's otherwise really not a nice thing.
1: Yeah. Well, Again. Our podcast is true crime. We do what we can. That's right. So thank you, everybody, that's been tuning in and listening and sending us case suggestions and reaching out to us. We greatly appreciate it. If you would ever want to reach out to us, you can do so through a couple of ways. One is, of course, our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find our contact page, but all of our show notes and the resources we use to bring you these episodes because we want to give credit where credit is due. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Criminal Dispod D I S P O D. I believe we're also on Twitter at Criminal Pod and also our YouTube channel, Criminal Discourse Podcast. So lots of ways to get in touch with us and to introduce yourselves. Tell us where you're from and let us know what you think. And Trish,
0: you have an update from a former case, I believe you were teasing me with.
1: Yes, there are two. One is the Sheila Keen Warren case. This is a killer clown case out of Florida. You've heard me mention it before. This has been kind of an ongoing thing to get her a final court date, but one has been scheduled for October. Sheila Keen Warren has been in jail the last five years awaiting trial. COVID didn't help. So she's finally going on trial in October. Make sure you catch up on that case. And also the Sophia Tuscan de Plantier case out of Ireland. I know I talked about that they were doing a re-examination of the evidence. I read today, actually, that I guess they have a specific cold case review unit that's also looking into the murder, which I thought they were already doing. So... Now everybody's reviewing her case, so hopefully, whomever the powers to be in Ireland are, that they'll come to some conclusion and finally charge someone in her death. That would be exciting. Get it the Google, be. the Google alert going. I do. One. I am a an avid reader of the Irish Times now. So,
0: <laughs> all right. Well, Roberto Fernandez, we're calling him a cross-country serial killer. In 2021, detectives in Florida here in the United States announced that DNA connected Brazilian national Roberto Fernandez to the murders of three Miami-area sex workers in 2000 and 2001. During this investigation, authorities discovered Fernandez had also been charged with his wife's 1996 murder and was suspected in numerous unsolved assault and homicide cases in both countries. So today, we'll take a deep dive into Fernandez's known crimes, the international decade-long manhunt to bring him to justice, and the unsolved cases for which he may be responsible. You ready? I'm ready. So Roberto Fernandes was born in the Brazilian state of Paraná in 1965. You all know I'm an English native speaker. I took French in high school. We're just going to get this out of the way that I'm trying my best with the pronunciations. In 1989, Roberto married Danielle Bucas, also from Paraná, so when he was 24 and she was 20. They settled down together in the city of Londrina. Roberto worked as a private pilot while Danielle studied to become a teacher. In 1991, Danielle gave birth to a daughter, Mariella, and this aggravated a kidney problem that she had. She also underwent heart surgery not too long after this, and it sounds like these health issues, though not debilitating, were enough to alter her career and family plans. So she took a job at the Municipal Children's Library in the Jardim Tropical Gardens District of Londrina, teaching language arts. In 1993, Roberto began working as a commercial pilot, likely out of the Londrina Governador José Richa Airport. At this point in the early 90s, Londrina, which means Little London, was a large Portuguese speaking, predominantly Roman Catholic city with a population of about 400,000, and it's more than half a million today. The climate, which I guess I'm thinking sunny, beautiful weather. I wanted to talk about their gorgeous climate. It's humid subtropical, meaning they get highs in the 70 to 80 degree Fahrenheit range with lows in the 50s to 60s, along with about 60 inches of rain evenly spread throughout the year. (laughs) A lot of rain. It's a lot. But there's another reason I mentioned it. The consistency of their weather is one of several reasons why agriculture dominates Londrina's economy. The city hosts Expo Londrina, the largest ag fair in Latin America, and it's also home to the State University of Londrina, which is one of the biggest Brazilian colleges as well as major sports clubs. So, londrina has got it going on a little bit. In 1996, Roberto Fernandez, now 31, and his 27-year-old wife, Danielle, and their 5-year-old daughter, Mariella are living at apartment number 1.104 in the Regina Isabel building. At about 1.30 a.m. on Monday, November 18, an upstairs neighbor described feeling vibrations as if objects were being thrown in the Fernandez apartment. She then smelled the strong scent of alcohol and heard Danielle say, Beto, calm down, two or three times before hearing around four gunshots. She called the building's doorman who went to check on the noises. Other neighbors reported similar disturbances and they called the doorman as well.
1: So was this the first time they had notified the doorman of disturbances or were there past ones? Or we don't know that.
0: We don't know that for sure.
1: And were the walls paper thin to be able to smell the stench of alcohol? They had to be, right? Yeah. I was like, are they (laughs) smelling alcohol, but okay. I looked at this building
0: today and it's actually described now as a luxury hotel, but that detail stood out to me as well. I usually can't smell what's happening in my neighbor's apartments. The doorman did encounter Roberto and his daughter, Mariella leaving in a hurry. After he passed them on the way up, he entered the Fernandez's unlocked apartment to find Danielle lying in blood on her bedroom floor, alive but severely wounded. Though emergency services arrived quickly, Danielle died from two gunshot wounds in her chest and abdomen at approximately 1.50 a.m., so about 20 minutes after the noises started. Authorities on the scene that night collected Roberto's Taurus 380 semi semi-automatic pistol, some shell casings, two bottles of open alcohol, and blood-soaked sheets as evidence, noting bloodstains on a light switch and some objects appearing to be out of place as if they had recently been thrown. So, of course, Roberto Fernandez is immediately charged with his wife's murder, but he claims it was self-defense, saying that Danielle threatened to shoot and kill him during an altercation. He says it began when she answered a phone call from a sex worker who wanted more money than what he had already paid her, Roberto says that Danielle was out of control that night due to the influence of drugs and alcohol in combination with her anger toward him over this phone call. I can tell you listeners right now, judging by Trisha's facial expressions, she's not really buying it. (laughs) I mean, I I could see why you'd get angry. (laughs) Well, it's about to get angrier. 10 days after Danielle's murder, once Roberto's accusations made the news, the sex worker in question came forward to confirm that she had made the phone call, but also shared that Roberto had viciously attacked and almost killed her. She claimed that while they were on a date at a local motel, Roberto abused cocaine and whiskey. Then he beat her in the head with a liquor bottle, punched her, kicked her and attempted to drown her in a hot tub. She was able to defend herself and she got away long enough to open the door to their room, at which point she says Roberto calmed down, redressed and left while she sought medical care for her injuries. Roberto didn't deny the attack, but he insisted he did it after the sex worker demanded a higher fee than what they originally agreed upon. So I guess in his eyes,
1: fair. Roberto seems to cast himself in a victim light.
0: He sure does. So shockingly, despite all of this, Roberto Fernandez was acquitted of his wife's murder. His self-defense claims held up due to lack of evidence and lack of witnesses to the contrary. Essentially, there was no proof that Danielle didn't threaten or attempt to kill Roberto, just his word that she did, and that was enough to uphold his self-defense justification for her murder. The sex worker's credibility was also a major issue, even though hospital records supported her testimony. It's important to note that her credibility as a sex worker weighed more heavily than his admitted infidelity and assault. Obviously unhappy with the acquittal, Danielle's family was rumored to have hired a hitman to assassinate Fernandez. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind,
1: but the man who murdered Danielle was walking away free. Question. So did toxicology reports ever get done on Danielle so that they could see like he's claiming she's drunk? Did she have any alcohol in her system? Because if she didn't, then that doesn't back up his story.
0: It was not in the news article, but I would assume if there wasn't evidence that didn't go against his claims and there were two bottles of alcohol. They made note of that in the news reports that maybe she had been drinking. And that was enough to make a I don't know what the trials are like in Brazil, that was enough to make the authorities or whoever was deciding suspicious enough. I also think it's important too that in a region where the main economy is agriculture, Roberto's a pilot, he's a commercial pilot, even here in America, that's not too shabby. And I don't know if that kind of weighed heavily on his reputation and how how people perceived him and what they took his word for. We don't know a lot about Danielle's reputation either and how all of that gelled together.
1: Did they ever question his daughter who was witness to this altercation? I am not sure about that either. We know
0: that later on in this investigation, they will come into contact with Mariella again to collect her DNA. But whether or not she provided any information that was helpful to the investigation or she just didn't remember, she was too young, she blocked it out. I don't really know. It's not in the current police reports. So, whether he was escaping his in-laws or for other reasons, Fernandez did flee to the United States around this time. Using his commercial pilot's license, Fernandez began making numerous trips between the U.S. and Brazil starting in 1996. By 1999, Miami International Airport had hired him as a flight attendant and tour driver. The Miami metro area of South Florida where Fernandez relocated is in the southeasternmost portion of North America, about a 12-hour flight from Londrina. This narrow strip of densely populated land is also referred to as Greater Miami, the Tri-County area, or the Gold Coast. That's my favorite one. And it's bordered by the Atlantic Ocean to the east, the Everglades to the west, and the Florida Keys to the south. Although the physical area of this landmass is a little smaller than Londrina, its population of over 5 million in the late 90s was more than 12 times Londrina's. That means there are about 4,407 people per square mile, or 1,702 people per square kilometer. Beautiful, but dense. About one-third of Miami metro area residents are foreign-born, and about one-half of them speak a language other than English at home, mostly Spanish. The climate is tropical, with average temperatures similar to Londrina, but with marked wet, dry, and hurricane seasons. Education, healthcare, social work are the dominant economic industries, followed by other professional and commercial services. It boasts two major universities, Florida International University and the University of Miami, along with several college and pro sports teams. Kimberly Dietz, who was born in 1965 like Fernandez, was living and working in this Miami metro area in 2000. Dietz was struggling with drug addiction, seeking treatment at no less than five recovery centers between 1998 and 2000. She started taking rehabilitation more seriously around the time she met her husband, Michael Livesey, and the two had a daughter, Victoria, in 1999. Dietz was a GNC health store manager at one point, but drug relapses kept returning her to sex work and street life. Her addiction led her to do those things, a friend once said. When she was clean, she was a vibrant, wonderful woman, not only because of her external beauty, but for her spirit. Seeking to provide a more stable life for their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Livesey separated from Dietz and served her divorce papers on May 23, 2000. On June 7th, an undercover officer arrested Dietz on prostitution charges. After her release, Dietz contacted Livesey to facilitate a visit with her daughter, asking him to meet her at the Little River Club, the recovery treatment center into which she'd been released. It's an interesting name for a treatment center. At first, I was like, "He <laughs> wanted to take her to a bar? <laughs> it reminded me of Little River Band. Dietz wasn't there at the agreed-upon time on June 20th, so Livesy returned home. He never heard from Dietz again. She was last seen alive near Biscayne Boulevard in Miami, working the streets. Around 8 a.m. on Thursday, June 22nd, 2000, a couple driving along Flamingo Road in Cooper City noticed a large brown suitcase discarded in a grassy area just a few feet off the roadway. They doubled back and parked near the suitcase to investigate, discovering Kimberly Dietz's body curled up in a fetal position inside, naked and bloodied. This may be a good time to give a disclaimer that we will be talking a little bit about the condition of some dead bodies. Investigators would later learn that the suitcase had been stolen from the Miami International Airport. A medical examination determined that Dietz had died 24 to 36 hours prior to her discovery from multiple blunt force trauma on the right side of her head, behind her right ear and her eye, as well as a two and a half inch laceration on the top of her skull with swelling on the right side. They found bruising on her buttocks, left leg, and the left side of her neck area, as well as petechia, which is signs of bleeding under the surface in her left eye. Severe vaginal and anal trauma, in addition to these injuries, indicated sexual assault. And Dietz's feet were also covered in green grass stains. So inside the suitcase, detectives located Dietz's blood-soaked skirt and blouse underneath her body. And for those of you who aren't hip to women's fashion of the late 90s, a skirt is shorts that have a flap in the front. So it's like skirt in the front, shorts in the back. It's a little bit more modest. They were very trendy back then as well. The squirt's top button was missing and had been replaced with a safety pin, which I remember doing as a teenager. Livesey identified his 35-year-old soon-to-be ex-wife by the description of her tattoos in news reports. He was initially suspected in her murder until a search of his home and forensic evidence cleared him. Investigators and local news outlets quickly linked Dietz's murder to a string of unsolved sex worker homicides in the area since 1997 due to their similar fact patterns, and we'll examine the details of those cases shortly. A friend said Dietz was, quote, brutally honest, whether you wanted to hear it or not. She helped a lot of people that are still clean and sober as a direct result of what she talked about, and she's going to help some people with her death. They'll see that if they stay on that road, this is where they could end up. I also think in a lot of these news articles, you don't hear a lot about so much about the woman's lives and the type of people they were. You hear about the arrests and where they were working right before they died. So anytime I came across a quote that actually told us a little bit about the type of person they were, I wanted to include that too. Just a little over a week after Dietz's body was discovered, Sia Damas, born in 1978, was released from prison after an undercover prostitution bust. On July 2nd, 2000, she was staying at a motel in Dania Beach, although her mother, Pamela Sager Sansony, was trying to help her find more permanent housing. She lost contact with the 22-year-old Damas after she boarded a bus to Miami from the Broward Terminal to meet a man named David Britt. Britt last saw DeMoss on Biscayne Boulevard in Miami, attempting to sell sexual services. This was the same area Dietz was last seen, and both women were engaged in prostitution activity at the time. At about 7 a.m. on Wednesday, August 9, 2000, a woman walking her dog along Southwest 31st Avenue in Fort Lauderdale noticed a large duffel bag covered in a white plastic trash bag in a grassy area about 15 feet off the road. DeMoss' body was stuffed inside and partially wrapped in more trash bag material. She was nude except for some jewelry and a pink Minnie Mouse hair tie on one of her wrists. Blood stuck some of the plastic bag to the skin of Demoss's torso and feet, trapping fibers for evidence. Authorities identified Demoss by matching her fingerprints and tattoos to her arrest records. The trash bags also yielded the fingerprints of Demoss's killer, while the duffel bag straps contained the killer's DNA. They first compared the fingerprints and DNA to David Britt, who last saw Demoss alive, but he was not a match. Further testing of the DNA on February first, two thousand one, did turn up a match the DNA from Kimberly Dietz's killer. This was a confirmation more than a surprise. Due to several similarities between the two women and the circumstances of their murders, which I'm sure you listeners already put together, authorities had already linked Dietz to Demotz's killing shortly after the latter woman's body was discovered. Like Dietz, Demas died of multiple blunt force trauma to her head, with two large vertical lacerations on the upper right rear portion of her head and one just behind her right ear. There was also trauma to the underlying tissue in the back of her neck and fractures on the inside base of her skull. Vaginal and anal trauma indicated a sexual assault had occurred and there was a small laceration to her left big toe where the nail was missing.
1: All of that is horrible, but that nail missing
0: just... It kind of this reminds me, too, of the um, the detail with uh, Kimberly Dietz having the grass stains on her feet, almost like maybe she was running away. Maybe there was the toenail kind of indicates struggle, some kind of struggle happening mm-hmm. there. By August 29, 2001, police and area residents understood that forensic evidence connected two of the still unsolved sex worker murders, confirming for many the suspicion that there was an active serial killer on the loose. Perhaps that's why Jessica Good decided to call her boyfriend at about 3 a.m. that morning to report her bad feelings about the, quote, white Latino guy with whom she was on a date. The man picked up Good, a sex worker, in his Licia tours van, and the two were going to spend the night at his place in Miami. Her boyfriend calmed Good's nerves and encouraged her to continue with the date, getting her to provide the man's address, the tour company's phone number from the side of his van, and telling her to call him back as soon as she got to his house. So, kind of good instincts, but he should have said, turn around, let's not do this. (laughs) Good never called back, and on August 30th, her body turned up in Miami's Biscayne Bay. She died as a result of stab wounds, but the information she provided to her boyfriend led police straight to her suspected killer. Licia Torres only had one van with a phone number on it, and Roberto Fernandez was the only driver of that van. They searched his apartment and van, collecting DNA samples from a pair of his underwear and fingerprints from the exterior driver's door handle of his work van. Fernandez, who lived alone, was nowhere to be found.
1: So his daughter wasn't with him at this time?
0: No, he did not take his daughter to Miami. My assumption would be that she lived with her mother's family. I don't have proof of that, but she definitely, fortunately, was not in Florida with her father. Since Good's body turned up in Miami-Dade County where Dietz's and DeMoss' were found in neighboring Broward County, their cases were handled by separate investigative teams, and the killer's DNA and fingerprints weren't cross-compared. There wasn't as much publicity I could find from the time about Good's murder compared to the others, and that might be because, in her case, we have a completely different method of killing and discarding of the body. So, instead of blunt force trauma and disposing the body in a travel bag along the roadway— Good was stabbed and up in the water. Although Miami-Dade County detectives did enter Fernandez's DNA into CODIS, it didn't yield any matches of known offenders, and the same goes for his fingerprints in APHIS. So I don't know if now they have different technology that matches it to DNA and fingerprints in open investigations, but it seems at the time either it didn't or a mistake happened here. For the time being, another area sex worker's homicide case would go cold. Then, in 2011, Broward and Miami-Dade detectives finally cross-pollinated and discovered that further DNA testing and one-to-one fingerprint comparison that the same man killed Kimberly Dietz, Sia Damas, and Jessica Good, and that one man was Roberto Fernandez. Investigation revealed that Fernandez fled the United States for Brazil immediately after murdering Good, realizing that he would be identified quickly, probably on September 1, 2001. Although the Brazilian National Police's laws prevented them from collecting Fernandez's DNA at that point, they did send along the fingerprints they collected as part of his wife's murder investigation. These were a match to fingerprints connecting Fernandez to Dietz's, Demasa's, and Good's murders. On August 2, 2011, in light of the DNA conclusively connecting the three Miami-area murders to each other, and the new fingerprint match of Fernandez to those Miami-area murders, police issued an arrest warrant for first-degree murder for Fernandez. The Brazilian National Police coordinated with the FBI and local police in Florida to locate the serial killer. They extended their search to Paraguay, which is just west over the border from Brazil, after learning that Fernandez fled there to avoid a 2003 sexual assault charge in Brazil. At the time, he was working as a freelance pilot, and it appears he continued his crime spree after he returned to his home country. The nature of this manhunt changed when investigators learned that on December 13, 2005, at the age of 40, Fernandez lost control of a twin engine Cessna 310 plane, crashing it into a large wetland in Misiones, Argentina. Although he was believed to have died in this crash, authorities weren't certain. For one thing, no one officially identified Fernandez's body prior to his burial. In addition, the caretaker, for reasons unknown, at the cemetery where he was buried, insisted that Fernandez's grave was empty. So combining these factors with, one, Fernandez's history of fleeing responsibility for his crimes, and two, needing to make that conclusive DNA match in order to solve three open homicide cases, international authorities agreed to exhume Fernandez's grave. There was indeed a body in the grave, and in December 2020, the DNA extracted from it was found to be a male parental match to Mariella Fernandez, Roberto and Danielle's daughter. In February 2021, investigators took the next step of matching Fernandez's exhumed DNA to the profile of Dietz's, Damas's, and Good's killer. With that confirmed, The women's family members were located and notified, and the Broward County Sheriff's Office made a public statement to announce that the cold cases were solved. Roberto Fernandez was posthumously convicted of their murders. At the press release, Detective Zach Scott shared that knowing his last minutes on earth were probably full of terror makes me feel a little better, but at least today we can provide answers to the families as far as what happened to their loved ones and the person who was responsible. So while there is certainly some relief that Fernandez died back in 2005, putting an end to his serial raping and killing, he was never held accountable for his crimes in his lifetime. Like Danielle's family, who felt Fernandez's acquittal for her murder was an injustice, there is a sense that closure and justice was denied for these victims and their families as well. And I will say, before we get into the unsolves here, uh, one thing that still boggles my mind is... With him not answering for what he did, not being questioned on what he did, his motives are unclear as well. We don't really know what took the exchange of sex for money to murder and rape. My theory is he couldn't pay. He wasn't going to pay. This was the issue potentially with that first prostitute, the first sex worker that led to his wife's murder when she discovered what he was doing.
1: Possibly. Or he's just a sexual sadist. There's the other worst one. (laughs) Neither ones are viable. (laughs) Neither one are good options, but we'll never know because he's not here to stand uh, for his crimes. That's right. So what are these unsolved? So we know these are definitely his wife because, come on, he murdered her. And we know the three sex trade workers. So there's four. How many more are we talking or suspected? Mm -hmm. We have at least seven more.
0: So there's quite a few and this seven more within a couple year time period, uh, or at least 97 and then a few more within another, the course of another year. And given the nature of his offenses, authorities believe Fernandez is responsible for several other, or they say numerous other, unsolved murders in South Florida and numerous other violent crimes against sex workers in Brazil in the late 90s as well. Now, I couldn't find very much about unsolved sex crimes in Brazil From here in America. So I chose to focus on the ones I could find in Florida. I did find at least seven of them. They were sex workers who turned up murdered from the time when Fernandez first started visiting the Miami area on a regular basis, shortly after he was acquitted of his wife's murder in November 96, and then up until he fled the area after Jessica Good's murder in September 2001. So there's four in 1997 alone, and many of those were linked in newspaper accounts, not just to each other. But they were also linked to the cases of Fernandez's known murder victims during those investigations. So when Kimberly Dietz was found, when Cia Damas was found, they were immediately linked back to these murders as well. And the 1997 homicides are similar in the fact that all the victims' bodies were found in public retail shopping areas just off major highways. Maybe that's where their killer was soliciting their services. Maybe that's where they hooked up. Maybe he's just very brazen. That seems brazen to me to drop them off in such a public area. But this is an important connection to Fernandez specifically because of his employment at the time, especially driving the tour guide van. So he was working for the Miami International Airport, and he traveled between the large airport hubs in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach. And that required him to become extremely familiar with these routes at various times of the day. This would also familiarize him with the area roadways much more quickly and intimately than simply living in Miami alone would have. And except for Jessica Good, who was found floating in Biscayne Bay, All of the body disposal locations were along routes Fernandez would have traveled between airports as part of his job. That's something I noticed as I put together a map of Fernandez's known victims and these unsolved cases and where their bodies were found. But that's also something the Broward Sheriff's Office mentioned in their public announcement that his job specifically, and not just the way that he killed people, but his job and the access to this information in these areas at certain times of day, made him more likely.
1: In looking at your map, I see the one thing, Lauder Hill, was that his home? Because I see it's marked a home
0: there. That's a home location. That was actually one of the victims. His home was in Miami. Oh, okay. But a lot of them are clustered in the same area. They are. The majority are in the the Fort Lauderdale area. He lived in the southernmost part of that area in Miami. Now Jessica Good said somewhere on Lejeune Road, but I couldn't find an exact address, but he was all up and down that area in the time that he lived there every day. So the first body in 1997 that turns up in the string of unsolved homicides is at 8.05pm on a Tuesday, February 25th, and it's behind the parking lot of Folly's Adult Bookstore in West Palm Beach. The adult theater clerk found 32-year-old Sandra Walter's nude strangled body about 100 feet from the store building, and he had checked the lot and not seen her body less than an hour earlier. Walters was a known sex worker whose last arrest by an undercover cop was only a month prior to her murder. I feel like I've already said that and I'll be saying it again. A few weeks later, about noon on Sunday, March 16, 1997, a group of boys came across Ellen Stowe's strangled body in the bushes behind an Eckerd pharmacy in Coral Springs. She was found nude from the waist up and was determined to have been killed 8-12 to hours prior to her discovery. Now, Stowe is a little bit famous. She was a former exotic dancer and model who achieved some semi-major success after appearing as Playboy's February 1977 centerfold, but she also struggled with drug and alcohol abuse. She moved to the area with her son in an attempt to clean up, but unfortunately she never achieved full sobriety, she racked up several drug and prostitution related arrests while living in the area, and she was last seen working Southwest Fourth Avenue in Fort Lauderdale on March 14th. And that was two days before she turned up dead and just five days shy of her 41st birthday, which is sad. Two more sex workers are killed around the Thanksgiving holiday in November 1997. The first is 41 year old Teresa Kettner, who turns up in a grassy area behind a Coral Springs Walmart on Friday, November 21st, 1997. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any more details about her life or her murder. The second is Tammy Strunk, discovered in a plantation shopping center trash bin by an employee about noon on Black Friday. That's the major shopping holiday after Thanksgiving, November 29, 1997. So that also struck me too. It's Black Friday, you would, I don't know about 97, but I would think that it was kind of busy that day. Strunk is clothed, but barefoot, and investigators believe she was killed 12 to 24 hours prior to her discovery. She had been working as a waitress for four years, but quit about a month prior to her murder. On November 11, she was arrested for using a stolen credit card to purchase items from a local Walgreens and return them for a cash refund. She was last seen at the Salvation Army earlier in the week that she died. Three more unsolved area murders occurred in the months leading up to Fernandez's known crime, so we're skipping over 1998 here, and we're going to start with Crystal Martin in Fort Lauderdale. So the 38-year-old's strangled body was discovered in her room at the Lonely Guest House Motel on Tuesday, February 9, 1999, by her landlord. Then there's 30-year-old Melissa LeJames, who I thought maybe was Melissa L. James, but I think Le James is her last name, whose body turned up in a Lauder Hill Canal in June 2000. And that's the same month Kimberly Dietz's body was found in a suitcase in Cooper City. There's extremely little detail on Le James, as I can only find her mention in connection with the other unsolved murders. She's a footnote in someone else's story. About noon on Sunday, May 16, 1999, a store employee in Hollywood found Delia Mendez's body in a parking lot dumpster off North Federal Highway. Hollywood, Florida, still not Hollywood, California. We didn't cross states. The 34-year-old left behind three children, two daughters and a son, who were living with her ex-husband at the time. Very different from the other victims, Mendes had been cut in half at the waist by what authorities believe could have been a quote, heavy, powerful piece of machinery. Mendez was wearing a blood drenched tube top and her car was found parked a few blocks away from the dumpster where her body was found. She too had prior drug and prostitution related arrests, Her boyfriend last saw her just before midnight, the day before her dead body was discovered, but he isn't a current suspect in her murder and neither is her ex-husband.
1: So even though the way she was found is vastly different from all the other victims, why do they feel Fernandez had a role in her murder? The most, she does appear in the news articles along with
0: his known murder victims before they knew it was Fernandez, as you know, these unsolved cases. So I think it was simply the location, the time period, and the profession, the fact that these were all sex workers. So Sheila Griffin's murder in January 1999 was originally believed to be connected to these unsolved homicides as well, along with Fernandez's first two known victims, Kimberly Dietz and Cia Damas. She was a former nursing student with a two-year-old daughter who was struggling with drug addiction and had turned to sex work to afford her habit. She was 45 years old when her raped and strangled body was discovered in a vacant lot on Northwest 2nd Street in Fort Lauderdale. Two years later, in 2001, DNA collected at Griffin's crime scene would reveal her killer to be Joel Tiller a 49-year-old serial rapist and murderer who had just been arrested during a burglary in Miami. So otherwise, this is one that fit the profile of some of these other unsolved and even Fernandez's known crimes. Tiller's DNA also matched a 2001 Orlando woman's rape kit. We don't know her name. His criminal record stretches back to Atlanta, Georgia in 1968, where he murdered a woman at the age of 16. After his release, Tiller moved to San Diego, California, where he was in prison for a brief time after raping a woman in 1996. He clearly wasn't in prison long enough because he moved to Fort Lauderdale in 1999 and wasted no time murdering Griffin in January of that same year. It's possible that Tiller is responsible for one or more of the three unsolved murders between 1999 and 2000, but I think it's important to note that he didn't necessarily target sex workers the way that Fernandez did. Tiller's known victims were aged 19 to 88 and were from varying socioeconomic classes and lifestyles. Then in 1997, we have Kevin Johnson who murdered at least two West Palm Beach area prostitutes and was convicted of the attempted first-degree murder of a third. Victims Debbie Montgomery, 37, and LaToya Williams, 21, were both connected to the other unsolved sex worker homicides before Johnson was arrested in the summer of 1998. Montgomery's partially clothed body was found on Wednesday, January 29, 1997, in a grassy area between a wall and a vacant building on Tamarind Avenue. She had been raped and her neck was broken from strangling. Williams was discovered among strewn garbage behind a concrete barrier wall of the Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard overpass at Henrietta Street on Wednesday, May 28, 1997. She was three months pregnant at the time. Mm. And with the information we have available, I think it's possible that Kevin Johnson was responsible for Sandra Walters' unsolved murder in February 1997 as well. The most obvious connection is the location. Montgomery, Williams, and Walters are the only victims at the time found in West Palm Beach, which is markedly north of the other dump sites. West Palm Beach is still part of the greater Miami metro area, but it's a little bit separated from Miami and Fort Lauderdale. There's actually radio and television stations in the area split between the two markets. There's Miami Fort Lauderdale, and then there's West Palm Beach. So we can split the Miami Fort Lauderdale area where Fernandez lived, worked, And where his known victims and the majority of these unsolved victims were. And then West Palm Beach is where we know Johnson committed his crimes. So I kind of put Sandra Walters potentially with Kevin Johnson as the unsolved, but who knows? Another thing that stands out to me that could connect Johnson to Walters is the fact that Montgomery and Williams were found on Wednesdays during the day, presumably after having been killed sometime the night before. So Walters was discovered on a Tuesday night because it was a parking lot routinely checked by store employees. But if her body had been concealed more or placed in a less frequented area like Montgomery and Williams later were, maybe Walters wouldn't have been found until Wednesday daytime as well. So I can't find any information about Johnson's routine, but it makes me wonder if he maybe worked a job that made him more available on Tuesday nights. Perhaps he lived with someone or was dating someone who was busy on Tuesday nights, giving him more free time. But Fernandez's known victims also turned up on weekdays. Sia DeMoss was discovered on a Wednesday morning. So maybe I'm just grabbing at straws. This is a coincidence, an opportunity, not an actual clue. While it's possible that Johnson was responsible for more of the unsolved 1997 murders, he's not implicated in any of the later ones because of his arrest in August 98. And he was convicted at that time of attempted first degree murder. And this arrest stems from an incident that took place on Friday, January 3rd, 1997, when he was smoking crack under a Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard overpass with 37-year-old Venetia Kinsey. I couldn't determine if this is the exact same overpass where one of his murder victims turned up five months later, but it's frightening to imagine that it could be exactly the same. In this instance, Johnson began beating Kinsey, a known sex worker, because she refused to pay her share of the drugs they were using. She was left disfigured, blind in one eye, with brain damage, muscle damage, and slurred speech. It's not abundantly clear why Johnson was arrested a year and a half after this incident. But during the investigation, someone the police only refer to as a reluctant witness informed them of his involvement in Debbie Montgomery's and LaToya Williams's murders. And to my knowledge, he was never forensically linked to those cases. So to the point about why Roberto Fernandez killed these women, Kevin Johnson's story about beating the sex worker over crack money, that's the closest I've gotten to a possible motive for why these women are dying. So currently it's only Roberto Fernandez, not Joel Tiller or Kevin Johnson, who authorities publicly linked to the late 1990s unsolved homicides in this area but they don't list the specific cases to which they're referring. So that's why I did all this research. They advise that if you do have any information about Fernandez and the unsolved crimes, you can contact Detective Zach Scott at the Broward Sheriff's Office directly and anonymously if you prefer at 954-321-4214. You can also submit tips via Broward Crime Stoppers at 954-493- 8477 or online at BrowardCrimestoppers.org. And that's B-R-O-W-A-R-D. Please keep in mind that no piece of information is too small. We have no idea what information police already have and what clue, no matter how trivial it may seem to you, could break a case wide open. So I guess going off on a tangent here, as I was researching this case, I realized that a quick Google search of body or murder, (laughs) along with towns where these women's bodies were discovered, turns up dozens of news articles about similar deaths before and since Fernandez prowled this area, even as recently as within the last few months. Researching drugs and prostitution in the same area while probably convincing the authorities what I'm looking about, reveals a long history of undercover busts without much evidence that these efforts are improving the situation. I recalled my own criminal justice courses in college when we talked about high recidivism rates for crimes like these, as in they do them, they get arrested, they go back out, they do them again. And the United States system's punitive versus rehabilitative approach, you know, how much are we just punishing and fining people, slapping them on the wrist, putting them in prison, but compared to really putting them through meaningful rehabilitative approaches. I don't have all the answers, as you can tell by my stumbling around with this topic, but I think it leads to part of a greater conversation that's already happening sir, in the United States but perhaps everywhere, about policing and public safety. And what I do know is violent crimes of sexual assault and murder are a much greater threat to our communities, I think. And it seems clear to me that arresting drug addicts does little to eliminate the causes of drug addiction and drug availability from which all of these other crimes stem. And I know that police departments have been called out for labeling the case files of crimes against sex workers, even murders, as NHI or no human involved. And despite the regularity of these murders in the same area over several decades, officers continue to reassure the public that they are not in any danger, which to me sounds like they're saying you're only in danger if you're doing dangerous things.
1: Well, they live a a high-risk lifestyle compared to the person that goes to work, works a job, comes home. I mean, they're engaged in a high-risk employment that puts them more in danger. 100%. And-
0: many of these murder victims were arrested by undercover cops in the days or weeks preceding their deaths. And these cops were posing as drug dealers or johns looking to pay for sexual services. And it was never the first time these women were arrested multiple times, right? So the question I ask is how much of this is really an attempt to clean up the streets versus making some easy arrests or maintaining a healthy informant pool? And how often do these arrests keep these women from eventually securing better jobs or housing? These are all Wendy rants. But the thing that I want to say is, I'm really not trying to criticize the police too harshly here. It's a very hard job. And the other thing is, I was researching the cases, checking my own bias. So let's check our own bias. As you listen to the background of these victims and the nature of their deaths, what went through your mind? I'm not gonna put you on the spot, Trish, but <laughs> but it's it's natural to want to distance ourselves from any victim of crime. And in this case, from these women and the choices that they've made in their lives to feel safer from crimes of this nature. You know, the thought of that could never be me or someone who I love. You know, I think to myself, is that entirely true? Could I never be in this situation? Could someone I know never be in this situation? Many of these women were described as loving, devoted mothers who made many attempts to overcome their addiction for the sake of their children. Many relocated, held down regular jobs, went to college to try to better their circumstances. And... And it's hard to say exactly what triggered their addictions, what triggered their relapses, the choices they made, but it's clear that none of them wanted to be in the situations that ultimately led to their murders.
1: As a former drug and alcohol counselor, I will say that, you know, addiction, it's not something you just walk away from. If it were that easy, we wouldn't have rehabs. We wouldn't talk about relapse. We wouldn't talk about methadone or Suboxone or any of those other drugs that help people get off drugs. It's a more psychological in my experience with my clients that in life is stressful Mm -hmm. And life throws unpredictable hurdles at us that knock us off our feet sometimes. And some of the negative coping skills people possess, they fall back into. And that, sadly, is drugs. And just starting on that path, of course, then leads you further down that path, where you then lose the job or drop out of college and you lose your children. And it is a very vicious cycle, but you're correct. Nobody, and regardless if you're a sex trade worker or not, whatever put you into that industry, no one signs up to be murdered. You're in a high risk business. You always have to be weary, but no one signs up to be murdered.
0: Right. And so looking at it in another way, you know, all of these women were aware that women just like them were turning up dead in the area. That still didn't deter them from the sex work that was supporting their drug habits and the money that they were making on the streets usually wasn't enough to support their basic needs. Several of these women were homeless and depending on other people for their food, shelter, everything, and they still turned to it to support their drug habits above all else. And I guess the thing that started settling in for me is I started Googling drugs, prostitution and my area, not just these towns. And it, it becomes pretty apparent that it's not just a late 90s problem. It's not just a Miami problem. Any area of the United States today with a major city, nearby major highways has a problem with drug and sex trafficking through it. We can say that these women made bad choices in their lives, but no one chooses to live this way. And if you're fortunate enough not to have experienced drug addiction personally, I think I would be grateful and leave it at that and not further condemn these women i guess to the point where we lose empathy for them and blame them for their own murders which is what you were saying Trish it's the killers themselves like Roberto Fernandez who are the only ones responsible and these women and their families deserve as much justice as any other victim another quote here the grandfather of Delia Mendez one of the 1997 unsolved murder victim cases shared with a local newspaper at the time quote i feel terrible i taught that girl to walk I feel like I'm dying inside from the pain. Delia's three children, they would be adults now. And if she had lived, Delia might even be a grandparent herself today. And Roberto Fernandez possibly took that from her or one of these other horrible men in the area at that time, along with some of the choices that she made. But these women were loved and they deserve to be remembered as the complex people they were in life and not just the discarded remains among trash that they were treated as in their final moments. And we can't forget Danielle Bucas either, also murdered in the prime of her life through absolutely no fault of her own, other than an unlucky choice in who she married. Her daughter with Roberto Fernandez, Mariella, is now 31, and that's four years older than Danielle was when Roberto killed her. In 1999, the Londrina City Council named a street in Danielle's honor in the Jardim Tropical Gardens District where she worked, and the ceremony didn't mention Roberto at all focusing solely on Danielle's academic achievements and teaching services in the community. So perhaps that's the best way for communities to heal from such tragedies, memorializing the victims' lives and their families' recovery efforts. Hopefully one day we can do that for Fernandez's remaining victims and other less-than-perfect victims of violent crimes. And I don't know with so much going on in the world why
1: I picked this for a soapbox today, but darn it, that's where I'm at. Yeah, you did. Okay. Oh my gosh. So that's a lot of information. And this guy, yeah, had he not died in that plane crash, would have gone on till he was stopped. And who knows? how much longer that would have been. So if you've enjoyed this episode, it's a lot of information. Check out our website so you can see the notes and the map that she put together and the timeline of the unsolved cases. A lot of work went into this. Hats off. So it's kind of when you were going through it myself, I was kind of I'm trying to keep everybody in order. So if you go to that timeline in that list, that'll help you. But if you've enjoyed this episode, all we would ask is that whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could leave us a review, that would be great. And as Wendy had mentioned before, if you have any information, no matter how small of any crime, not just this case, please reach out to the authorities in that area. Like we always say, if you see something, say something, know something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. So as always, everyone, we want you to stay safe out there. Don't put yourself in high-risk situations. Don't. That's the number one way to avoid it, right? Right. (laughs) And also, we need to watch out for one another. So until next time, guys. bye. Bye. Bye.